Hello and a warm welcome to O'Connell Day Unplugged on Wednesday, the 3rd of February 2021. Mark Pender is suffering a power outage on the US East Coast. So on this week's podcast, it'll be Brian Jackson in Sydney and myself, Jeremy Hawkins, here in London. While hopefully somewhere between the virus infections and the battle between retail day traders and the hedge funds, there's still scope for actual economic fundamentals to have a say in where markets are headed. There's certainly a lot of data scheduled this week, and in today's podcast, we'll round up the main themes around the globe. But before we do that, I think it's probably worth noting that in, in terms of COVID, it's not so much infection rates as the delivery timetable for the vaccine that's become the key metric for investors trying to assess which economies are going to lead the way towards securing a sustainable recovery. So, Brian, perhaps if we can kick off with you, and um, you can sort of give a quick update on how the vaccine rollout is shaping up in your part of the world yeah it's um you know obviously it varies from from country to country but uh you know most most governments across the region have some sort of plan in place um but it, it's not going to uh you know be a, a quick process uh, as is the case elsewhere in in the, in the world so uh yeah in the meantime we are still seeing uh outbreaks um in various parts of the asia pacific region um, just in the last 24 hours, we've had another um, uh, case uh, take place in Melbourne, in, in Australia's second largest city, uh, and concerns that that could um, spread pretty quickly has prompted authorities to um, introduce some new restrictions. Uh, and, uh, you know, right across the region, we're, we're seeing similar sort of stories, Hong Kong, uh, parts of northern China, Japan. So, you know, it's still very much a... a you know, trying to contain the virus uh, through public health restrictions rather than um, relying on, you know, the, the cavalry to come in in the form of a vaccine uh, right. for, the, for the time being. The vaccine's been manufactured in Australia and in your part of the world. Obviously, under the lights of, well, say, India's not exactly down the, just down the road from you, but well, I think yeah. that's the world's biggest vaccine maker. But are you actually manufacturing vaccines in Australia? And, yeah, there will be well. some of that. Um, I, I believe down in, in, uh, in Melbourne... Uh, there's facilities uh, so you know hopefully that will will spread the the rollout uh, you know quicken the, the rollout but um, you know we're obviously in down in the southern hemisphere uh, in in summer as well uh, so I think they are hoping that you know well before we, we get to our winter um, you know there'll be some uh, you know, pretty good coverage. Okay let us hope so. Okay let's get down to some of the economics then. Australia RBA, they've just extended their quantitative easing program. And yet, from what I gather, it seems that they just sort of revised up their expectations for the economy. So what's going on? Yeah, I mean, they're obviously um, a little bit you know, pleasantly surprised by the, the strength of the recovery over the last few months. So we, we had the, uh, the RBA out yesterday uh, delivering a speech saying that, you know, we're hoping to get back to sort of pre-pandemic levels of output uh, more quickly than they had previously anticipated, but um, so yeah, when is so when is that? When are they hoping to actually get GDP back to where it was? Because I mean, for uh, Europe, for example, yeah. they're still talking well into next year at the earliest. No, no, they are, they are hoping you know sometime this year that we should get back to that sort of you know okay. s- step one, you know square one. So you know um, that that's that's good, I guess. Uh, uh, you know, obviously, um, it's it's still very much about the. the the change in, in uh, growth rather than the absolute level is probably what's most important for people's uh, you know chances of getting a job and, and getting back um, some decent income growth. But that is will be a, a pretty you know uh, good marker for just 
how how far we have come back from you know the depths of the the initial impact. But you know, in the meantime, um, you know, growth obviously is it you know is good, but the RBA is still also focused on inflation, and you know, there's no sort of indication that we're going to be getting back up into um, you know their two to three percent target range anytime soon. So for for that reason, you know, they don't see any case for um, uh, you know removing the, the policy support that they've got um, uh, at the moment. And just you know, earlier this week, they you know came out again very explicitly uh, when they had their policy meeting, saying you know we we do not see um, it at all being likely that we'll raise rates again until 2024. Yeah, so low interest rate still for a long time. Yeah. Okay. Um, what about China? Um, PMI suggesting some cooling, and I suppose also with China, I should also ask you quickly, uh, would be any further developments in this sort of spat between China and Australia from a political standpoint? Yeah, well, just on that second point, it actually, yeah, it, it does seem to have um, gone off the front pages a little bit in the last, uh, you know, since the last time we spoke. Uh, it's still simmering there in the background, and we've, we actually had an interesting development in the last week or so whereby we had a, a trade deal between New Zealand and uh, China. Obviously, New Zealand and Australia have always had a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and now uh, New Zealand has sort of been, to a certain extent, uh, deepening its uh, relationship with China and, and also at the same time suggesting that Australia needs to perhaps change its approach to the way that um, you know our government has been uh, responding to some of the things China's been doing. Uh, so... That in turn creates a little bit of tension between Australia and New Zealand. So, yeah, it, it's still very much a um, you know, a live issue right across the region. How people do uh, respond to some of uh, you know the pressure that China's been putting on their bilateral relationships, uh, and so that's that's going to you know continue, I think, going forward. Now, in terms of um, you know the China economic data, yes, we so we've had the PMIs uh, in the last couple of days and. They've sent a pretty clear message that we've had a bit of a, a stalling in the momentum of China's recovery um, in both the manufacturing and the services sector. Now, uh, you know, we don't want to you know make too much of just sort of one month's worth of data, but um, yeah, you know, I think going into uh, the, the the Chinese New Year holidays, which are just about to start, you know, we, we have definitely seen um, a bit of an impact, probably from. Uh, you know, some of the, the outbreaks of COVID that we've had uh, up in the north of China over the last, you know, five to six weeks. So there have been uh, lockdowns put on, you know, pretty large cities um, in, in that part of the country. And we've also seen, um, you know, authorities uh, tighten or at least recommend tightening of, of, of uh, travel over the Chinese New Year period. Uh, you know, as you know, um, Millions and millions of people uh, travel back to their, um, you know, their hometowns or home uh, villages over the Chinese New Year period, uh, and that provides a a huge uh, a boost to, you know, consumption and travel and, and other uh, parts of the economy over that period. So if we do have a noticeable and significant drop in in that uh, travel over the holiday period, then you're going to uh, you know see that basically in the in the numbers over the next month or so. Okay, fair enough. Um, and just on that, I mean, we are yeah. also, you know, every year at the start of the year we do have this sort of you know blind spot in the in the Chinese numbers because yeah right they they don't they don't release uh, 
separate data for January. Uh, you know, normally you'll have, um, you know, for instance, you'll have April data come out in mid-May or September data come out in, in mid-October, but that doesn't happen in February because they combine all the numbers for January and February to try and um, you know, remove the impact of differences in the timing of the, of the Chinese New Year holidays. So what that basically means is that we're not going to get um, a, a good picture of, of how the Chinese economy is going for another six weeks uh, in, in mid-March when we'll get um, you know, combined numbers for January and February. Okay, interesting. India, um, we've got an RBI meeting on Friday. Um, we've also just had what their union budget as well. Did, was that expansionary enough, do you think, to have any implications for how the RBI uh, might vote on Friday? Or is it kind of a done deal anyway? Uh, I think it probably is a done deal. I think, um, you know, again, RBI, similar to other central banks in the region, have um, you know, shown that their priority is you know, still supporting economic recovery. Uh, and so the, yeah, I don't think there'll be any move to to remove some of that policy support for, for at least the time being. You know, there has been some uh, noise or volatility in the, in the headline inflation numbers in recent months, but that's mainly being driven by uh, swings in food prices. So we, we tend to find that the RBI uh, tries to, you know, to look through some of those um, swings in food prices and not get too hung up on the impact that has on the headline CPI number, instead trying to you know, pay attention to the underlying uh, trend. And so that's been pretty steady. So uh, you know, I think for the time being, um, you know, they, they'll uh, again want to keep policy pretty supportive and, uh, and not, um, not make too much changes uh, later on this week. What we have seen though is that Actually, you know, the the PMI numbers for for India that we got this week were pretty good, and so they they are actually um, you know, starting to uh, see some decent growth uh, uh, in the Indian activity numbers, and so I th you know I think uh, obviously RBI will welcome that, but I don't think they're going to be uh, removing policy support at the time being. Fair enough. I must ask you, certainly there seems to have been a fair bit of media coverage of these protests from the um, the farmers against agricultural reforms. And from what I've seen, it seems to be you know, a lot of people are talking, you know, many thousands involved in these, uh, these protests. Is this significant for you know, GDP or is it something which is going to blow over, do you think? Uh, to be honest, I, I missed that. Uh, yeah, so I'll have to... Uh... I'll have to pass on that one. I'm, I'm, you know, obviously, uh, agriculture is uh, a relatively large uh, part of the Indian economy. So, uh, any uh, any developments on in that sector um, will have a, an impact on on the broader numbers. But uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not too sure uh, what's going on on, on that particular. No. But just Fair just, you know, just just briefly, I mean, what what has been striking about the PMI numbers that we've had since the start of um, you know over the last four or five days is just there has been a, a, quite a bit of um, variability between different countries. You've got um, so India, as I said, had a pretty strong uh, set of PMI numbers. Also, mm -hmm. uh, Singapore and Korea both showed um, some pretty um, solid uh, increases in activity. But then on the other side of the ledger, you had Japan, China, and Hong Kong all, um, you know, weakening quite significantly in January. So, a bit of a, a two-track uh, situation for for the Asian economies at the, at, you know, at the very start of the year. And has that got anything to do with the vaccine delivery or the infection rates, or just uh, yeah, the way I think it there's to be... definitely a, a, an element of that. Um, you know, Hong Kong has had a pretty nasty outbreak um, 
uh, and some you know real uh, severe uh, public health restrictions have been put in place. You know, we mentioned the situation in, in the north of China recently as well. That's clearly, I think, having an impact. And, yeah, in Japan, we had, um, you know, a state of emergency uh, in Tokyo and some surrounding areas uh, having uh, a, an impact, I think, on activity and sentiment there. You've also, you know, still got these ongoing um, concerns about whether the Tokyo Olympics are going to be mm-hmm. able to go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about that, yeah. Uh, yeah, and yeah, so far the authorities are insisting that uh, yeah, it's it's uh, all systems go and still planning it. But um, uh, and even just this week, you know, we've we've had people come out saying, yep, it's going to happen no matter what happens with with COVID. We're going we're going ahead with this. But you know, clearly, uh, if, it, if the situation was to worsen really significantly, there'll be just more and more questions about that. So we can only hope that you know over the next you know three or four months. Uh, you know, the vaccine and, and other measures do uh, allow them to go ahead with that. OK, um, you touched on it briefly, but just uh, let our, um, our clients do listen, our clients know rather that um, we will be adding uh, South Korea to our country coverage and um, Brian will be the, the guy doing it. So just uh, in a nutshell, anything you particularly want to say about South Korea at this stage, you know, what the, what we should be looking at or thinking about in terms of where the country is moving at the moment? Well, yeah, I think one of the reasons why we are, um, you know, always interested in, in what happens in, in South Korea is that, you know, it's one of those Asian countries that are very much exposed to global trade patterns. And so it can often give you a, a good leading indicator of, of what's happening uh, more broadly uh, in uh, in demand and, uh, you know, production across, you know, that global supply chain that Korea is, you know, very much a part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's also... Um, useful in that uh, they tend to be one of the first countries to actually report the trade numbers each month so you know it's always a good idea to yeah it's always a good idea to to keep an idea uh, an eye on on korean trade numbers just to get a feel for how you know global demand is is is, uh, developing excellent okay anything else you'd like to add from your part of the world no uh obviously um There's, there's been a lot of focus uh, about some of the, the swings in, in the U.S. markets over the last uh, week or so, um, but uh, not not having a huge impact, I think, on again, on the policy uh, outlook across the region. Uh, I think it, it's very much a, a case of just maintaining the, the current high levels of policy support and no great urgency to start withdrawing that. OK, excellent. Thanks for that. Yeah. Right. Moving on, then, as they say, well, I guess in the absence of Mark, I uh, just mentioned that US wise, I guess it's fair to say that there haven't been too many surprises in terms of economic mm-hmm. numbers anyway. We're still waiting to see what the final stimulus package will look like. But a 4% fourth quarter economic growth in the States was pretty well in line with the market consensus. Even so, the FOMC last week signaled that it has no intention withdrawing support from the US economy, um, reiterating that it will keep its quantitative easing program at $120 billion a month until substantial further progress has been made in the recovery, which, of course, keeps it nice and bland. So gives them effectively an open book to do what they want. As far as this uh, week's concerned, we'll get the uh, the new payroll on Friday, um, expected to be up about 50,000 after a decline of 140,000 in December. 
people, I guess, after a large increase in the ADP measure earlier on today, uh, there may perhaps be a little bit of an upside risk to the current consensus. Dollar-wise, it's worth mentioning, and again, I think this partly goes back to the, this COVID side. Um, the US is what running about number five in the vaccination rate globally at the moment, and the relatively quick delivery there certainly seems to be helping the greenback to make ground against, especially the likes of a euro. It's up almost, what, two and a half percent against the euro now over the course of the last several weeks. And uh, it really does seem as if these vaccination numbers are becoming more and more important to investors. Um, so my part of the world then for Europe, um, well, it's as far as COVID is concerned, the European Commission now is asking for a more coordinated action amongst the member states to limit travel from high risk areas. Uh, really, it's been extremely unhappy with the cuts in deliveries of the vaccine from AstraZeneca and Pfizer. And that, of course, led to a major bust up last week when the European Commission decided to suspend part of the Brexit deal agreement on Northern Ireland in a bid to impose restrictions on COVID vaccines or all these components of vaccines exported from the bloc uh, via Ireland to the United Kingdom. I mean, Ireland wasn't even consulted in this decision or even informed for that matter. So it went down like a red balloon and the actual proposal itself was pulled out very quickly. But it really underlines the fact that the vaccine rollout as far as continental Europe's been concerned has been uh, extremely slow. Indeed, it's becoming a major political issue for the likes of uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And we have a German elections in September. So they really will want to start um, getting further progress on this rollout as quickly as possible. Uh, are there any parts of yep. Europe that are doing a, a better job than um, yeah, some of these areas where there's concerns? Well, um, before I get on to the UK and wave little, um, the little Union Jack flag over here, um, the only part of Europe, to be honest, which is performing well on this, fr this um, front is, is the UK, okay. which uh, managed to get hold a lot of vaccine very early on. And that's really allowed. And of course, it does has the Oxford AstraZeneca uh, base uh, in the UK anyway. So it's meant that for U the UK vaccination rate at the moment stands just behind. I think it's what Israel at the top and the UAE in number two place. So the UK is running third. And to put that in perspective, that's more it's the current rate for the UK vaccination is just over four times what we're seeing amongst uh, you know, the bigger European countries like Germany, France, Italy and Spain. Um, I really do think it's one reason why um, you, you know, investors looking at Europe at the moment, they're seeing increasing COVID restrictions being introduced. Germany's extended its lockdown program now through until at least March. I was talking it may even be extended as late as Easter. Uh, in France, we've seen the curfew times being extended as well. So almost wherever you look, we're seeing sort of bad news in terms of the additional lockdown or containment measures being introduced, which will inevitably hit first quarter GDP. Um, and yet we're not seeing the kind of offsetting good news in terms of a quick vaccine delivery, um, such as we're seeing the likes of the UK. So, for example, looking at where sterling is at the moment, I mean, sterling's had an extremely good time. It's up about a couple of percentage points or so against the euro since uh, over last month. And that really does seem as much as anything else to reflect the fact that the vaccine rollout is coming out so much more quickly. Investors are hoping for a faster turnaround in the economy because by and large, the UK economic data uh, have very much reflected the latest lockdown. So although we don't have fourth quarter 
uh, UK GDP yet. It's almost certainly to be a lot worse than the Eurozone. Uh, that showed a 0.7% quarter on quarter decline. Uh, the UK, I suspect, will be significantly steeper than that. But as I mentioned, you know, the, the pound is still going up. Um, so, yeah, Europe then, as mentioned, say fourth quarter GDP, the Eurozone down 0.7%. And it's got to be said from the way these restrictions are still in place that we're probably going to get a first quarter contraction as well. So if that's the case, that's going to put the Eurozone uh, back into uh, well, its second double dip recession, which can't be good news. Um, and to be honest, that's probably true for the likes of the UK as well. And what we are seeing, I think, because of the slowness of the vaccine rollout, it's really starting to hit consumer sentiment. Uh, so we've seen uh, household morale sort of down pretty well right across the eurozone. It's also fallen in the UK as well. I think that's more to do with the numbers being so weak. And it's uh, a notable worry in Germany. I mean, in December, we saw retail sales volumes in Germany down 9.6% on the month. And to put that into context, that's more than three percentage points more than we saw during the worst of the first coronavirus wave. So at the moment, the illness of European economy really isn't shaping up too well. Which means that today's inflation report out of the Eurozone came as a complete surprise. So as we've been talking about for such a long time now on the podcast, Eurozone inflation has been, to all intents and purposes, uh, non-existent. Um, as of December, uh, the annual rate was running at minus 0.3. It's been down there for several months. Today, we saw it bounce up to 0.9%. So that's what a 1.2 percentage point increase in inflation in just one month. And the core rate, we know that all prices are backed up, but the core rate was up at 1.4% from 0.2%. So that's up 1.2 percentage points as well. Now, yes, we've just had uh, a reversal of the cut in Germany's VAT. They cut that rate by three percentage points in the middle of last year. So that went back up again uh, in January. But that was nothing like enough to explain what's going on. So um, it's going to be interesting, I think, looking at the upcoming inflation numbers out of the eurozone, because there's clearly still speculation that ECB may have to do more in terms of easing its policy because the economy is doing so poorly at the moment. But there's obviously uh, also a number of hawks amongst the governing council who are uh, a uncomfortable with the amount of quantitative easing that's already been undertaken and b are being concerned that it would lead to higher inflation at some point. So these inflation numbers, I think, are going to you know, cause something of a punch up at the ECB come the next couple of meetings or so. And so I, I think see- those inflation numbers have also um, you know, su- you know, surprised the upside, but that, that's had a bit of an impact on, on our divergent index, hasn't it? It has very much so. I think that's right. I mean, we put together some indices um, at Econa Day, which looks at how economies are performing versus market expectations. And we got to the stage now whereby we've had inflation numbers. And I mentioned the uh, the actual the CPI or the HICP, as Europe likes to call it, the inflation number there. We also have producer price index out as well, which is a little bit stronger than expected. And the signs are really that you know, inflation, the kind of numbers we're seeing at the moment, would suggest that the eurozone economy is doing very well. In practice, I suspect the upside surprise has more to do with some of the problems being caused by COVID, notably with regard to uh, disruptions to supply chains. Um, Also, of course, we're living now in this early post-Brexit world, or such as a 
now we're in the Brexit world, we're post the, uh, the, the transition stage under which uh, a lot of uh, port activity has been disrupted with companies having to fill in new forms to export or, or import between the UK and the European Union. And it's certainly been reflected in a massive increase in uh, delivery times and putting upside pressure on prices. Now, that may be just a short lived thing. We'll have to wait and see. But it has led to, um, I think, you know, generally speaking, uh, there's been all this talk about well, is, is inflation about to go up? Well, for people who think that's the case, then you have January Eurozone numbers are certainly going to stir the pot a little bit. And what about the, the, the European PMI numbers? And I guess they've been pretty mixed uh, this week. They have, again, and the trouble with them, most of the PMIs over here, um, you know, you say you, in your part of the world, you've got some relatively strong ones. By and large, as far as Europe's concerned, they're, they're still looking pretty miserable. So if we look at the, uh, the the updated, the final figure for January for the, the composite output index uh, for the Eurozone as a whole, that was at, what, 47.8. So it's down from 49.1 in January and you know, ultimately suggests that as far as January is concerned, um, you know, the Eurozone uh, GDP contracted. Um, if you look across the various countries, the only member state which actually registered a positive number was Germany. And that was only at, where are we, 50.8 if I remember. So it does look as if you know, these various lockdowns are having quite a significant dampening effect upon uh, Eurozone growth. And right. most of these restrictions are going to remain in place for a while yet. Okay. Um, what else should I be mentioning? Super Mario, Bran, you remember Mario Draghi? I do, yes. Yes, indeed. The former president of the uh, European Central Bank uh, for Christine Lagarde took over. Well, he may be the next prime minister of Italy. Um, this, of course, is the man credited with saving the euro with his whatever it takes speech during the um, exchange rate crisis back in uh, 2012. I, I, um, I, I always think former central bankers are, are just bound to be successful politicians. Well, I mean, you do wonder. It's, it's, we're talking Italy here, so I must say, who knows? But I suppose at least, I mean, if he apparently he's accepted the um, request from the Italian president to try to create a new technocrat government, whether he can do it or not remains to be seen. I mean, he's going to need to get um, majorities in both houses of the Italian parliament, and that won't be easy. Um, but markets, I must say, rallied quite significantly on the back of this. Um, Italian bond markets well up, the um, Italian stock market closed uh, well up today as well. And that's, of course, on the grounds that, well, they know that Mr. Draghi has proved himself to be uh, a major dove when he was at the ECB. And of course, he's also very much pro a united Europe. But his problem will be that if you look at the opinion polls currently, the, you know, the leading party um, is uh, the Liga party, which used to be called the Northern League. And that's a right wing anti-establishment party, which is currently running at 23 percent. Not far behind them is the far right Brothers of Italy, so-called, with about 16 percent. So if he gets the job, I think it will be good news as far as uh, Italian markets and indeed the euro is concerned as well. Uh, but it's certainly not clear he's actually going to do that. Right. Okay, what else I've got left? I'm going to mention the Bank of England, which could be quite interesting this week. Um, there's been speculation we talked about on various podcasts about the possibility of the Bank of England introducing a negative bank rate, which would be the first time in its history. 
and the fact we'll be also getting a new monetary policy report which contains the bank's updated economic forecasts on Thursday as well you know, sort of potentially provides the uh, you know the fundamental background for some kind of a cut but listening to all the comments coming out of the various MPC members it really doesn't seem that it's going to be a clear-cut vote there's certainly some people who do favor going negative others are certainly still against it a lot of people I think really don't know so at this stage, it looks as if probably bank rate will stay at 0.1%. Uh, quantitative easing still looks likely to be held at 895 billion sterling. Um, uh, but uh, is there anyone on the on the MPC who is likely sort of to who's expressed sort of some sort of a difference of opinion from the majority? Well, Silva um, Tenrero, who is one of the external members, I mean, oh. she has been proposing um, you know, negative interest rates for some time. Uh, she believes if you look across the water to the eurozone, uh, she thinks that negative interest rates there have provided a boost to uh, eurozone growth. Um, I think, but I mean, to be honest, it's hard to uh, unravel some of the effects of whether interest rates have been good or bad. Um, it may be it's provided some support for eurozone economic activity, although when you look at the growth rates over there, they're, they're hardly spectacular. But I think um, as concerns, I think in the UK, a bit like we've seen in Switzerland, although of course there we do have negative interest rates already, that uh, negative rates ultimately will do more damage than good because they're going to undermine uh, banks' profitability. And in worst case, so uh, because banks will be hit on their profit side, uh, the institutions will start getting more involved in, let's say, less prudential lending practices, which could actually be damaging to financial markets full stop. So it's one. It's going to be an interesting one tomorrow. It's certainly be interesting what the bank has to say. Um, personally speaking, I think the odds are probably against a, another cut, but it, it is a possibility and one that certainly investors will be looking at. Um, I mentioned say UK vaccine rollout doing very well and offsetting disappointing data. But to round off my side, one country where the data has actually been holding up pretty well is Canada. Um, in line with the US, I guess, you know, the numbers there continue to be pretty decent. Uh, November GDP, they have monthly numbers up 0.4% on the month. And they have a flash estimate for December of 0.3, lump that lot together. And it will suggest that fourth quarter GDP will be up 1.9% quarter on quarter. Or in US terms, an annualized rate, that would be almost 8%, which would be a pretty impressive performance. And certainly a good deal stronger than the Bank of Canada itself was expecting only a week or so ago. So that's uh, prompting additional speculation that we could see Bank of Canada being amongst the first of the major banks to actually start tapering its quantitative easing program. OK, that I think is it from my side. So, Bron, you done? I am, yes. Uh, I guess in, in Mark's absence, we could have a long extended discussion about cricket, but uh, we, we might take that offline. Strangely enough, I can hear all our listeners tuning out at that very moment. Sure. Yes, OK. Quite right, too, though. OK, well, let's wrap it up there then. So on behalf of Brian and myself, thanks as ever for listening. Uh, we're back next week. And in the meantime, of course, you can keep up to date with all the key market moving data and events in Econoday's global economic calendar. Bye for now.